Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Ken McLeod, class of 2007, the policy director for the League of American Bicyclists. Welcome, Ken. It's good to have you with us here in cyberspace. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you. So um, how have you been adapting to uh, the past year during the pandemic? Uh, has, has your bike helped you get through it? It, it has. Um, I was actually kind of lucky in that I'd been living in Washington, D.C. for about seven years um, and decided that I wanted to get out of the city. Um, so I moved to Roanoke, Virginia in 2018, um, which is a five-hour train ride from D.C. So I, I kept my job working with the League of American Bicyclists, and they let me work remotely um, and then just take the train up every month or so, um, which was really great. And then when the pandemic hit, I was already kind of adapted to working remotely, um, which made that really easy. Um, and it did kind of just give me more time to, to ride alone on my bike and explore um, all the different bike routes and mountain biking options in the Roanoke area, um, which is very cool and different than Washington, D.C., which has many more people around. So this is probably a question you get a lot, but were you an avid bike rider as a kid? And what's your first memory of riding a bike? So yes and no. Um, I came late to bicycle riding when I first tried, when I first learned or tried to learn. Um, I rode myself straight into the back of a car and uh, didn't didn't pick up a bike for maybe three years after that. So, <laughs> you were traumatized. Yeah. So so it, it took me a bit, but but then when when I got it, I got it, um, and it was really uh, a great help to me uh, for my mobility getting around as as a kid. Um, it allowed me to bike to my middle school uh, where I took some advanced math classes. Um, that were a grade above my, my grade school. So I would bike to the middle school and then bike to the grade school for the rest of the classes. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, I also used it to bike to a bus stop and then take the bus and then bike to a, a job as my first job. Um, so once I got it, it, it had a really big impact on how I got around as a kid. And then I probably didn't touch it again until after college. So, so speaking of college, tell us how you came to Pomona and um, what were your years here like? Uh, did they play an important role in what you're doing now? Yeah, um, so I came to Pomona in part because my sister went to Claremont McKenna. So um, she was, she is two years older than I am. Um, so she enrolled at Claremont McKenna and I visited her a couple of times and saw the campuses and thought it was great. Um, Do two of you ever go to uh, sporting events together? So I, I, I played I played football and rugby in, oh, in college. Yeah. So uh, you yeah. know I, I never went when I wasn't uh, on the football team to uh, Claremont Pomona uh, football game. But during my my time, if I remember correctly, we we beat them every year. So oh, that good. was a, a big point of pride and a, a great point for yeah. the relationship of me and my sister. <laughs> Yeah, these things are important. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then, yeah, I mean, going to Pomona was was great. I, I, I loved it. I was a philosophy, politics, and economics major. Um, and having kind of 
uh, a broad idea of how to approach issues um, has really helped me, I think, in my work as policy director for the League of American Bicyclists. Uh, biking can seem like a really simple issue, uh, but it goes in all sorts of different and interesting ways, um, as, as I found over the almost nine years that I've worked at the League of American Bicyclists so far. After your Pavona years, you went on to law school. What was it that interested you in law? Um, I mean, I think it, it really came out of uh, going to Pomona and kind of that philosophy of politics and economics major. Um, I really saw law as providing the rules for society um, and really something where philosophy and politics kind of meets the road. Um, so that's what appealed to me for law school, um, which I went to William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, I think they claim to be the nation's oldest law school. Uh, there's there's some oddities there, but you know it, it, that was a, a great time. Um, but then I I never have really been practicing lawyer because I started the League of American Bicyclists under a public service fellowship, um, and when they had an opportunity to join the staff, I joined, and I've been there ever since. So tell us about the, the bike league. What, what do they do and what do you do there and, and how do they make a difference? So we are a relatively small nonprofit. Um, we're about nine staff people. Um, we're based in Washington, DC and we're a membership organization. Um, so we have like 15,000 members and then we have bike clubs and advocacy organizations that are members. Um, so our reach is about 350,000 people. Um, and, you know, we're, we're a national advocacy group. There's a lot of state and local bicycle advocacy groups. So our focus is really on federal policy and then providing programs that help people at the state and local level um, kind of have ready-made programs for advocacy. So we have a Bicycle Friendly America program that's existed since 1995. Um, and provide support for communities, businesses, and universities um, to kind of look at their own policies and their efforts around bicycling and see how they can improve. Um, Pomona has been recognized as a bicycle-friendly university, uh, I think starting in 2014. Um, our current Bicycle-Friendly America director, uh, Amelia Neptune, is a graduate of Pitzer. Uh, and she is, uh, you know, disappointed that Pomona is a bicycle friendly university and Pitzer isn't. Uh, but I, I, I want all five C's to be bicycle friendly universities. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then our longest running program is bicycle education. Um, we've had a cycling instructor program since the 1970s that's trained, I think, over 6,000 people to give bicycling education courses. Um, and there's around 3,000 people who are currently active uh, providing bicycle education to people of all ages. Can you walk us through a little bit? So you said that, um, can I call it the Bike League? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, the Bike League focuses on um, kind of the, the federal level kind of policy, um, but then you have your, your partners in, in states that, that you work with. Um, uh, how did, are the laws about cycling different differ from state to state? And, and how, do, how, does, how do you work with all your partners in different states? Yeah, so traffic laws are totally a state issue. Um, there's, there's no federal traffic laws for how people behave on roadways. Um, so it is a state by state thing. That's really how I started at the, the Bike League is as a graduating law student without a job. 
Um, I, I approached them about our public service fellowship program, which says if a nonprofit will allow you to work there, you'll get a stipend. Um, and so I pitched them on this idea of doing uh, 50 state comparisons of bike laws, uh, which ultimately became a series called Bike Law University that's on the Bike League website. Um, and you know every state is different and sometimes traffic laws are very complex and it seems like most people don't know them. Um, so providing that kind of comparative basis has been, I think, really helpful for working with state and local groups that have questions about laws and how they can make policy changes. Um, but as, as I've gotten more involved in bicycle advocacy, it's also become more apparent that the funding for how we build roadways um, has probably a much larger effect than the traffic laws about how we use those roadways. Um, so if we're spending millions or billions of dollars on highway expansions and we aren't spending money on uh, biking facilities on roadways or biking trails, um, we're gonna have less safe biking and you can't really make traffic laws uh, that, that get you out of that situation. So um, is, is uh, funding the, the, the biggest roadblock you run into or what are the, what are the big problems that you, you deal with and that you're trying to deal with on, on those local, various local levels? Yeah, I mean, I think funding is is the big issue. Um, you know, our, our nation spends about $47 billion through the Federal Highway Administration each year. Um, and slightly less than a billion of that goes to biking and walking. Um, so when we're thinking about how people get around in the United States, um, we're spending about 2% of our federal funding on biking and walking and 98% on things that help people get around in, in cars. Um, so the, the outcome is it's very easy to get around in cars and it's, it's difficult and often unsafe to get around biking and walking. Um, so getting more funding and, and getting better road designs so that it's, it's safer and more comfortable for people to bike and walk um, is the, the biggest issue. You mentioned some of the programs uh, initiatives that you uh, you've have or you work on. How do you measure success for these type of programs overall? Um, I, I think the the number one measure for us as a small organization is uh, people participating in things with us. So we are very proud that our Bicycle Friendly America program has an incredible reach um, that it's developed in its twenty five years ish of existence. Um, you know, we have, I think, bicycle-friendly communities in all 50 states, uh, bicycle-friendly businesses in all 50 states, uh, over 1,500 participating businesses. Um, I think we have a couple hundred universities that, that participate, and I don't think we quite have all 50 states, but we're getting there. Um, and about 25% of the U.S. population lives in a bicycle-friendly community um, that's gone through our program and has kind of made that effort to improve biking. Um, so th those are some of the ways that we measure ourselves and, and kind of see that impact of our work. So can you give us a, an example of like a successful program that um, you've been involved in or that the, the Bike League has been involved in? Um, and you know what and how did that play out? How does it how does it play out when you're when you when you win? <laughs> So, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to win. Um, you know, one, 
one traffic law related win that's been huge for bicycle advocates in the last decade is passing um, what are called, called safe passing laws or three foot passing laws. Um, so these are laws that say when a driver passes somebody on a bike, they have to give them at least three feet. Um, or in some states, it'll say they have to move over if there's an adjacent lane and give them the same sort of passing clearance that they would give a vehicle. Um, and those, they, they were created by Wisconsin back in the 1980s, I think. And then like no other state adopted one for like 20 years. And then in the last 12 to 15 years, um, we went from like one state having this law to I think 36 states having this law. Um, so that really shows the success of state organizations organizing for change. Um, and, you know, we don't have great data on how those laws are enforced or how they play out in kind of civil litigation because we don't have great data systems for traffic citations or civil litigation settlements because settlements are usually private. Um, but we do know that there is a lot more um, public education around passing a bicyclist safety. Um, and there's a lot more money being spent to promote uh, that idea to drivers that they need to give safe distance to bicyclists when they're passing them. Speaking of safety, one of the things that you've said is that a big part of improving public safety overall is reimagining traffic safety. Um, do you want to expand on that? What are some of the other areas that um, you 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 would like to see um, traffic safety reimagined? Yeah, so our the the U.S. approach to traffic safety is really based in kind of what I was just describing around passing laws, enforcing them, but not having a lot of data about how they're enforced, and then hoping that there's public education and public culture change for how people behave. Um, but many nations that have better traffic safety records than the United States don't put that behavior and that individual behavior approach first. Um, they, they focus a lot more on what the agencies and institutions that create roadways um, can do. So when, when I'm thinking about reimagining traffic safety, I'm thinking about less emphasis on policing individual people's actions, um, you know, making sure that no one speeds ever, which is a very hard thing to do. It is kind of our traditional approach to traffic safety. But if you thought about designing roadways so that people don't feel comfortable speeding, or designing vehicles so that they have um, technology embedded in them that reminds drivers not to speed or makes it harder for a vehicle to speed or maybe doesn't let you set your cruise control above a speed limit. Um, or as we look to the future for automated vehicles, uh, that those automated vehicles are gonna be vehicles that don't speed. Then I think you can imagine a future where there isn't speeding. Um, but if we're just policing individual people uh, who speed sometimes, I, I don't think we're ever going to get there. So th that's that's kind of what I think of when I think of reimagining traffic safety, um, thinking about those those systems that can get us to the the goal that we want, which is no speeding. Some yeah, Californians may have some problems with that. <laughs> California has some interesting speeding policies. <laughs> well, I, I, I find that interesting what you're saying, because it, it's sort of um, classic American thought, isn't it, that that we put the emphasis on the individual and and not on the systems that we put in place that the, the individual is working in. 
but uh, the and um, that's what you mean by the term safe systems, right? I mean the the. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What are some of the? Are there any others that you're working on that, or that the the group is working on? Yeah, so I, I mean, safe systems is that idea that we're we're not going to get there by focusing on individual behavior, and we have to think of the systems that put those people in the context where they they make that behavior. Um, so it, it really came out of um, some of the approaches pioneered by Northern European countries uh, that within the last. 20 years started setting a, a reach goal that there should be a goal of zero traffic deaths because all traffic deaths are preventable. Um, and, and then this has kind of evolved over time there and the United States hasn't quite embraced it, but we're seeing some effort to do it. Um, some of the big uh, kind of players in the traffic safety space like the National Safety Council um, have issued reports about safe systems and mentioned the shift away from individual behavior. Um, oddly enough, Federal Highway Administration has issued reports about safe systems, but the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has not. Um, so <laughs> we're we're working on it. Um, I think we're getting there. I think when when I hear Secretary Buttigieg talk about how the Biden administration is going to put safety and equity and environmental goals at the core of its approach to transportation. Uh, I, I hear the seeds of us moving towards safe systems, um, but it's very early in terms of whether or not we're gonna see that action. Speaking of the Secretary of Transportation, you recently uh, had some collaboration with him. Can you tell us um, some of the projects or some of the projects you would like to work with um, Secretary Buttigieg, who's uh, uh, who bikes to work that you've seen uh, around DC biking and to and from work. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm very excited to, to work with him and his and the administration. Um, haven't met with him or his staff yet, but, but hope that happens soon. Um, it was exciting in the nerdiest way that he uh, was interviewed at our National Bike Summit recently, um, where we had about 1,100 attendees online. Um, and he mentioned this, this document called the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, uh, which is kind of the, the Lego bricks that help build the, the Lego set of a road. So it says how wide a, a stripe should be. It says if a bike lane can have green paint in it. It, it says things like that. Um, and that is something that's only updated once a decade and it's being updated right now. Um, so we're really excited to work with the administration on that, submit comments on that, make sure that biking and walking and safety are at the core of that document in a way that they haven't been. Um, I, I know you mentioned kind of California and, and speaking California, um, there's this rule that has been a long time rule in traffic engineering and a long time rule in this document, the, the manual on uniform traffic control devices called the 85th percentile which says you set speeds for roads based on the 85th percentile of drivers. So if, if you have a roadway where everyone speeds and you do this study, you raise the speed limit. And in California, there, there's a law that says you can't enforce the speed limit unless you've done that study and if necessary, raise the speed limit. 
So you get this feedback really? loop of oh, no. raising speed limits and people speeding and raising speed limits and people speeding. And, and you, you never, you never yeah. get slower speeds. Right, um, because people are, are always going to push the limit, right? I mean, yeah. whatever the limit is. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that uh, is, is under consideration for being taken out of this manual uh, that is a federal manual, uh, you know, uh, adopted into law. And um, for, uh, I guess, like 80 years ha has had that sort of guidance where people speeding set the speed limit. Um, <laughs> Which, which is not great for safety. <laughs> I was going to say that. This is not <laughs> safe <laughs> at all. Yeah, I don't want those people setting the speed limit, actually. Yeah. <laughs> all so, those people were roaring past me on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of those issues right off the bat where uh, I, it's exciting to hear him recognize this, this very nerdy, weird niche document. Um, and hopefully that means uh, we're gonna get really good safety improvements out of uh, this next revision that, that happens. Um, comments are open until May 14th. If anyone wants to look into it, comment on it. What else can you tell us about California law? <laughs> you, you, you kind of lit up and, and when we mentioned it's like, oh, if, I, if you only knew what I know. If there was a moment, my brain just went. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the, the good ones. Um, there's another California law that comes up a lot when I talk to um, automated vehicle developers. So there, there's like confusion over the best way for a vehicle to approach turning right across a bike lane. And California and Oregon law, even though they are next to each other, give the exact opposite rules. So California law says that you have to merge into the bike lane and then turn. Oregon law says you cannot merge into the bike lane and you have to turn across it. So <laughs> when, when automated vehicle manufacturers have like reached out to bicycle groups, they'll take them on rides and the bicycle group will see it follow one or the other rule and say, well, they did it wrong. And it's because there's two different rules and there's no research about the best way to do it. We just kind of picked traffic laws arbitrarily. <laughs> Yowzers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking like for consistency's sake, for safety's sake. And that's that's one that's one traffic law. Yeah. In two neighboring states. Yes. Um, there's there's hundreds of traffic laws and none of them are are very well coordinated. There there used mm -hmm. to be a group um, that that did traffic law coordination, um, but it basically ceased to exist in 2002 because um, it couldn't keep up with the internet. Wow. Ken, has the pandemic affected the, the bike leaks work at all? Has it changed, has there been any changes that you have seen or like focused your uh, your work towards something else? How's, how has it affected the your work and the bike leaks work? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's been interesting because there's there's been a lot of interest in biking because uh, we've seen a lot more people biking. There was a boom in bike sales. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of cities doing innovative things with, with slow streets and kind of closing down parts of their streets to provide space for biking and walking. Um, but in my work personally, uh, the, the much larger impact has kind of been the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the reaction to the killing of George Floyd. 
um, because we we have had such a relationship with traffic laws, which mm -hmm. go hand in hand with traffic law enforcement. Um, it's really made me consider how our work uh, relates to law enforcement and how law enforcement is so central to our traffic safety paradigm in the United States right now. Um, and kind of really made me feel that it's it's urgent to change um, from our, our individual behavior-based approach to a, a more safe systems approach that really recognizes that people are put in, in places where they, you know, can't necessarily succeed um, or feel threatened um, in ways that are really just kind of awful. A little while ago, you mentioned um, Secretary Buttigieg uh, speaking at the National Bike Summit. Um, can you tell us a little, little bit more about the National Bike Summit? What I mean, is this an annual event? Um, who who attends and 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 what what are some of the key takeaways this time around? So so it's an annual event. It's been going on for about twenty years, um, and I'd say two thirds of the attendees are bicycle or pedestrian advocates. Um, so people who are employed or volunteer their time for bicycle and pedestrian advocacy organizations. And, you know, the, the main focus, the thing that happens every single year is we get people up on Capitol Hill meeting with members of Congress to talk about biking and walking and why it's so important to them um, and try to get support for policy changes and funding changes um, that are gonna allow people to have safe access to be able to bike to places. Um, so, so that's really always been the, the core of the National Bike Summit. Um, and it was interesting this year doing it online and having a really good attendance for us. Uh, you know, a little over 1,100 people. I'd say the couple previous years before this, we were probably around like 400. So significantly more people with having that online um, option. Um, and then people really seem to like the, the Zoom meetings with members of Congress or their staff, um, which worked out pretty well. Uh, last year was, was much different in that we were all set for in-person until about a week before uh, it was scheduled to happen, which was like March 15th, uh, right when everything started shutting down. Um, and we, we felt really good that we made the right call um, about having it virtual last year, um, but it was so much nicer and so much smoother uh, this year, having a year of experience, um, both for, for us as organizers and for uh, Capitol Hill and, and kind of that, that meeting set up on Zoom, which uh, last year was, I think, dial-in conference calls, uh, which did not work anywhere near as well as Zoom. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Ken, what are you working on now? What are some of the projects that you look forward to seeing come to kind of fruition in the near future? So I am very much on the manual on uniform traffic control devices uh, beat right now. Um, there, we are also expecting a transportation bill in the next couple of months. So that'll deal with funding programs for roadways, and it'll also deal with um, kind of the, the highway safety funding. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if Congress 
kind of embraces any shifts from that individual behavior-based approach um, or how they deal with uh, somewhere between $150 million per year and probably $400 million per year that goes to traffic law enforcement through that program. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see if they put any uh, reporting requirements on it or regulation that kind of speaks to the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the need for police reform that's been surfaced there. Um, so there's there's a lot to do. I also wouldn't be surprised if there was an automated vehicles bill soon mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. year. Um, it's been a priority of industry for the last three years. Um, and it's been something that we've been engaged in to make sure that if we're gonna have a framework for automated vehicles, it has to include the safety of people who bike and walk. Um, when you look at current vehicle safety regulations, it's all about the person inside the vehicle. We have no testing for the people outside the vehicle. Um, and as we get automated vehicles, uh, we need to make sure that those vehicles are, are safe for the people outside of them that they're interacting with. So, so we've been talking about bike safety and um, uh, bike laws. And now let's ask the really important question. What kind of bike do you ride? Um, depends on the day. I, <laughs> oh, I have yeah. four bikes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, yeah, the most common bike that I ride is a cyclocross bike that is currently set up with a front basket and rear basket. And, you know, it's, it's just what I... I go around town on. It's uh, the urban. Also, it's it's the urban uh, environment bike. Yeah, but I also have my road bike, and I also have my carbon gravel bike, and I also have my uh, mountain bike. Now, what's a carbon gravel bike? So gravel bikes are a lot like road bikes, uh, drop bars, but they're going to have wider tires, um, disc brakes, um, and generally just made for a little bit more off road. Uh, so it's. It's nice and versatile, but still carbon fiber, so it's light and fast. And uh, I got it last year, um, and it's and it's been great. So, have you? Is is this all the bikes you want, or you have your eye on another one? Um, well, right now I live in a one bedroom apartment, but if I lived in a <laughs> in a house, I I would really be eyeing a cargo bike. Um, you know, I I have my dog who you know, is getting older. So getting the dog in a, in a cargo bike, I think would be really fun and cute and amazing. Uh, and I think I'd just always have a smile on my face if I, I had her in a front basket uh, and I was biking around. <laughs> it probably is a help for toddlers too. We have, we, we kind of drag them around with them sometimes. Yeah. There's there's a very exciting bill right now that uh, would give a tax credit for e-bike purchases. So if people wanted to purchase an electric cargo bike to take their kids around, um, this I think would provide a tax credit of up to a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. Um, How much are they? <laughs> so they can be expensive. Um, wow. I, I would say a typical electric cargo bike is going to cost between three and seven thousand dollars gotcha. but yeah. it, it, can, it can be a car replacement for a lot of people particularly in an urban area with decent bike infrastructure right and what's your favorite bike trail and are there any that uh, you haven't ridden yet and would like to 
Um, I mean, when I was living up in uh, the DC area, I lived in Arlington, Virginia. So uh, my commute used a couple trails, but it was really amazing. Um, for a while there, I was cutting through um, Arlington Memorial Cemetery, uh, which is legal to do. And you'd go down these, uh, you know, roads in the cemetery that are nice and curving. And you'd come out um, right behind the Lincoln Memorial, uh, go around a couple traffic circles, go along the reflecting pool. Wow. Um, and then, you know, just a couple blocks to my office, um, which was like two blocks from, from the White House on K Street. Uh, so, so that was, you know, it's a couple trails, but it was an incredible commute. And, and I really miss it as uh, someone who moved to re remote work. More recently, there was a um, small, uh, small, small road collapse on the Blue Ridge Parkway by me um, in Roanoke. So that meant that the road was closed to cars, but not closed to bikes. And there was a really great 20 mile stretch where you, I could just get on the Blue Ridge Parkway and not have to mm. worry about cars. And it was just incredibly beautiful, especially last fall when the, the leaves were turning. Um, it's, it's amazing. Um, and there, there's always new places to bike that I'm looking for. Uh, this weekend, I'm going to uh, a place called Flag Rock Recreation Area in a small town called Norton, Virginia, that's near the border of Virginia and Kentucky. Um, and they have some mountain bike trails and really looking forward to it. Did you um, bike a lot when you were at Pomona? And are there any trails out here that you particularly love? <laughs> I did not have a bike at Pomona. I, I, I walked a lot. You were the one kid who didn't have a bike. <laughs> or did you have a skateboard? So I, I mostly knew, knew people who longboarded, but because I played sports, my, my understanding was like, if you skateboard, you're eventually going to break your wrist and you're going to be out your sports season. So I just walked places and it was, it worked. Um, I, I did get to visit uh, Los Angeles for a work trip a few years ago. And we took bikes um, along the Los Angeles River, which was surprisingly nice. Yeah. I like the surprisingly nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's still very much concrete. Yeah. So on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking with Ken McLeod, class of 2007. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.